Grant us, we beseech thee, O Lord, that the course of the world may be directed according to thy rule in peace, and that thy church may have the joy of serving thee undisturbed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. These are the words from the Collect of Sir Day's Mass. And it's a beautiful prayer, and one indeed that we should pray. There are two intentions. First, that the state may actively support the mission of the church. Grant us, we beseech thee, Lord, that the course of the world may be directed according to thy rule in peace, and that thy church may have the joy of serving thee undisturbed by the state. So we pray that the state may one day actively support the mission of the church, as it should. And we also pray that the church might actually serve God. It seems a temerous thing to say. But alas, we have reached a juncture where there are members of the hierarchy of the church who are actively militating against the good of the church, placing an obstacle to the accomplishment of the mission of the church, which is to save souls. Now, in our superior general's recent letter to friends and benefactors, he explains the synodal way, which is the latest initiative of what we call the conciliar church, to try and restore or renew the church, the Catholic church. Now, unfortunately, the synodal way, all it does is put the church at the service of the new world order by implementing some charade of democracy. They change the church fundamentally. They turn it upside down. Instead of being a hierarchical structure with God, our Lord Jesus Christ at the head, his vicar, the Pope, his, his visible head on earth, and a hierarchy underneath him. The synodal way turns the church upside down. It's now become the listening church. It listens in the theological spaces, which can be anywhere, the beach, the pub, the classroom, the political lobbies among the environmentalists or the gay community. or These are the places where it listens. And it discerns, it says, the voice of the Holy Spirit through what it hears in these theological places. And then so the hierarchy, the church is a listening church and it's, it's there to meet the needs of the people. So essentially all it is doing is rubber stamping the latest vice, the latest trend, moral trend in society. It's insidious. Now, whether the Pope or the cardinals and the reformers really understand what they're doing is debatable. Do they realize they are leading the lamb to the slaughter a second time? They are making the mystical body of Christ suffer the passion by their actions. Do they realize this? We do not know. One thing we do know is there seems to be a sense of desperation, urgency in their reforms. Remember not long ago, there was the new evangelization. Everyone was talking about it. If you were politically correct, you would put that word in every paragraph that you wrote. The new evangelization is gone. And this initiative, the synodal way, is more insidious. 
because the new evangelization was just talk, talk, whereas this is actually an instrument of subversion of the church. There's a sense of urgency. Now, is it because there is an unseen hand pushing those reformers into making changes? We see that in the, the political sphere, politicians acting out of self-interest are willing to allow themselves to be instruments of somebody else's agenda, pushed into enacting a legislation which nobody asked for. I mean, where is all this gender ideology come from? Nobody asked for that. Where is all of the homosexual gay marriage agenda come from? Nobody asked for that. Where's the sex education in schools come from? Nobody asked for that. And the politicians push it through. It's not only the politicians, it's through all of the structures of the establishment. Nobody is really acting out of a desire for the good of the whole. They're all self-interested. It doesn't take much to see how society is being completely destroyed. And I would argue, I would surmise that possibly what is driving everything since the Second Vatican Council has been an unseen hand making these prelates act out of self-interest, ambition, or whatever, to be welcome in the, the group, to be part of the zeitgeist. And they've prostituted themselves to push through an agenda which is so clearly destroying the church. The other theory is, if it's not an unseen hand making these reforms, it is an aging group of hippies who had this great dream back in the 60s of peace and love and freedom from all laws, and then the world would be heaven on earth. And it, clearly, it hasn't happened. Essentially, you liberate yourself from God's law, you enslave yourself to your passions and to the devil. And then every metric, I think I've said this before, every measure of the health of the church has fallen off a cliff since the Second Vatican Council. Everything has fallen into decay and corruption. But they're not willing to let go to admit that they're wrong. And so, just like the person who believes that the best way to put out a fire is to pour more petrol on it, they are thinking, we need more of the same. We need to embrace the world more closely. And then perhaps we will convert the world. Quite the opposite happens. So this agenda they're pushing, either, either it's ambition and they're being pushed by the hand of another, or they're just too proud to admit that their experiment is a failure. The ruins of the church, perhaps the lamentations of Jeremiah might be applied to the church today. The ways of Sion mourn because there are none that come to the solemn feast. All her gates are broken down, her priests sigh, her virgins are in affliction, and she is oppressed with bitterness. Her adversaries are become her lords. Her enemies are enriched, because the Lord hath spoken against her for the multitude of her iniquities. Her children are led into captivity, 
captivity of, of vice, of passions, before the face of the oppressor. Now, the church is in a parlous state, the visible church, but the church as the bride of Christ, as the mystical body of Christ, remains beautiful and spotless. But visibly, she's abandoned and tainted with scandal. The church, as the unique means of salvation, founded by our Lord Jesus Christ, she has visible marks by which she is clearly identified. But as the institution governed by the conciliar church, those marks are not entirely effaced or hidden, but they are covered in a veil. They shine out not so brightly. So what is this conciliar church? that does so much harm. Is it a church within the church? Are there two separate churches together? Well, the Catholic Church is a visible society known by its four marks. One, holy, catholic, apostolic. It's a supernatural society. And it's called, in theology, we call it a perfect society because it possesses all that means it requires to accomplish its end. Just to explain that quickly. A family is a society, but it's not a perfect society because for families to flourish, they need to live in a community. To have a perfect family, it has to be part of a wider community. So it's not a perfect society in the academic sense, whereas the church is. The church possesses all the means that she requires to fulfill her end, which is to save souls. She continues the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ to save souls. So the church is a perfect society. The term conciliar church is best defined as a state of mind that prevails within the Catholic Church, even in the hierarchy, and which, wherever it prevails, prevents the full manifestation of the marks of the church and obscures the divine origin of the church. Or otherwise stated, the conciliar church is a, a loose society. It's a loose society of men with modernist ideas existing within the perfect society, which is the Catholic Church. This modernist society took control of the proceedings of the Second Vatican Council and then the levers of power within the Church, even the papacy itself, all of the popes, John XXIII to Pope Francis, are members of the conciliar Church. They have modernist ideas. Even Pope Benedict, who had a traditional heart, but his philosophy was very modern. And to him, the errors of ecumenism and religious liberty, to him, they seemed a perfect development of church doctrine, but not at all. So the conciliar church are a loose society of men who are informed with modernist ideas and they eclipse the marks of the church. The church is one holy, catholic and apostolic. It's one in faith, one in worship, one in government and one in spirit. It's one in faith means one doctrine, one moral law. But the modern church has introduced heterodoxy, ambiguity in the magisterium, a disconnection between faith and morals. If you can be in adultery and then also go to Holy Communion, there's a disconnection between faith and morals, quite clearly. 
If you have no respect towards the blessed sacrament in church, there's a disconnection between faith and morals. If you are conducting ceremonies for communities who are identified by their sinful lifestyle without calling them to repentance, there is a disconnection between faith and morals. And we see this quite clearly. So the, the unity of faith is broken. The unity of worship is broken because the liturgy is diverse at the inclination of whatever minister celebrates. Unity of government. Well, the church is hierarchical. With one head, our Lord Jesus Christ, and a vicar, successor of Peter. It's not a democratic institution. It's not a synodal institution. Collegiality, introduced at the Second Vatican Council, brings the Pope down to being, as they say, first among equals. He's no longer the head of the hierarchy. Rebellion in various Episcopal conferences puts them in de facto schism. We see that in Germany. Unity in spirit. The church is fundamentally united because we are all members of the mystical body of Christ. So we're united in our participation in the divine life. If we are a living member of the church, we participate in the divine life, or the divine life lives in us, animates us. And that's our union that unites the church militant, the church suffering, and the church triumphant. But in the conciliar church, first of all, grace has a different definition. And it's not the spirit of God that animates the church, but the spirit of man. It is the union of humanity. The church militant and the church suffering have gone because everyone is now a member of the church triumphant. We're all saved. So let's just be happy together. We're all saved. Not only Catholics, but every religion. The reasoning goes thus. Because our Lord took to himself human nature, all of human nature is sanctified. Therefore, everyone who is possessive of human nature is sanctified. And that's patently wrong. The church has never taught that. We're born in original sin. We have to be baptized. At least the baptism of desire, or the baptism of blood, but usually the sacramental baptism. And we need to grow in grace and die in grace. Otherwise, we cannot be saved. So the unitary in spirit has disappeared. The church is holy. It has a holy finality, which is the beatific vision of God for souls. It has a holy head, who is the cause of all holiness, our Lord Jesus Christ. It has holy members, because they participate in his mystical body. It has a holy liturgy, a holy mass, holy sacraments, a holy law, the lex immaculata, spotless law. It has the means of holiness. And yet we see in the conciliar church, there is no longer the desire to send souls to heaven. When do you hear that today? It's all about looking after the planet. It's all about the brotherhood of man, Freemasonic goal. It's not about getting souls to heaven at all. The end is not holy. Jesus Christ, instead of being the cause, the essence of holiness, essential holiness, he is now simply the historical Jesus who is a good example of holiness. Holy members, 
All mankind are holy by the fact that they have human nature. There is no need for repentance, no need for confession. Just be sincere. Be sincerely wrong. Be sincerely a Muslim, be sincerely a Jew, be sincerely a Buddhist, and you will be saved. No, you're saved in the truth. Our Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, came down to earth to tell us. If we deny that, we're saying, you needn't have come. You don't need to listen to Jesus. We can go our own way because we're already sanctified. We're already saved. No, there's one religion. The conciliar church does not teach that. The church is holy in her liturgy. And you see the modern liturgy today, it has been desacralized. The holiness taken out. It's been made profane. And it is no longer exclusive. It's lost its holiness. To be holy is to be set apart. Our liturgy should be set apart. It is not something that false religions can participate in. Or that we dilute with elements of false religions. The church is Catholic. It's universal geographically in space. It's universal in time across the centuries. And it's universal in society. In the modern church, the vernacular language and enculturation have smashed the geographical unity of the church. Even in the same town, you have to have different churches for different languages and different styles of mass. To say that the modern liturgy is more relevant to man, allows man to participate more fully, absolute nonsense. Before you could go anywhere in the world, walk into any Catholic church and feel like you were at home. And you could knock on any Catholic door and they would open the door and you would see a fellow brother and sister in Christ. There was truly a global community. The different Episcopal conferences present different understandings of the faith and morals. So they destroy the unity of faith across the world. Not only the unity of liturgy, unity of faith. The Dutch church published a catechism shortly after the council, which was overtly Protestant, heterodox. And so essentially they, they broke away from the rest of the church. And then all of the modern catechisms now, they have adopted the theological developments, errors of the Second Vatican Council. They're hidden in there. Even the catechism of the Catholic Church, the modern canon law as well, has those errors in there. Universal in time. The church held on to the deposit of the faith and unpacked it, revealed the treasures the same treasure across the centuries. Now, what is tradition? Tradition to the conciliar church is the process of adapting ourselves to the needs of the moment. The doctrinal needs, the moral needs, the liturgical needs of the moment. So oxymoronically, tradition means perpetual change. In the bull, Ecclesia Dei Afflicta, it says it there, Archbishop Lefebvre had a wrong understanding of tradition because he doesn't understand that tradition is about 
adapting to the modern age. Read it, look it up. It's shocking, shocking. Universal across society. One of the lovely things about the Catholic Church is the rich, the poor, from every part of the world, they can all come into the same chapel. And they're all, in the eyes of God, equals. And if they're good Catholics, in the eyes of each other, they are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And then if you do travel the world, certainly in the traditional world, it's a beautiful thing. One priest was telling me how he was in Wananatu, an island in the Pacific. He'd go to a, a hut which was used for the chapel. You'd have the native children, you know, ragamuffins dressed in t-shirts and shorts. And then you'd have the, the, the French military officers there in full uniform with their beautifully regimented children all beautifully dressed. And previously, the, the officers were regarded as the enemy of the, of the natives. But when they were Catholic, they were in their chapel, they were the same. And after the Mass, everyone sat down to, it was a traditional, just what I do here, a communal meal, and all sat down. And so beautifully dressed French officers would be sitting on logs, chatting away with the chief and the, the, the elders of the village. And he said that brought home the beauty of the Catholicism of our church, the Catholic nature of our church. And that's, that's existed through the ages. I've seen the same, the same thing in India as well. Really beautiful, really beautiful. The church is apostolic. Its ministers can trace their ordinations back to the apostles. The doctrine from the apostles, that's certainly being challenged in the modern church today. Religious liberty, ecumenism, collegiality. These are not from the apostles. Apostolic mission. The mission given to the apostles to teach and baptize all nations is unchanged in the church through the centuries. But now, do we have that mission to teach and to baptize all nations? Or is it just simply to dialogue with our brother religions? The conciliar church has obscured the marks of the church. Not hidden them completely. Well, you're here today. It hasn't hidden them completely. But it is important we're aware that the church is in the greatest crisis it's ever experienced. What is the future of the conciliar church? Well, it's a house built on sand. And everything which is not of God will fail. An evil tree will bring forth evil fruit, and every lie is found out. The conciliar church is destined to failure by its very nature. We're watching it fail before our eyes. It's a house built on religious sentiment. It's not the faith, a supernatural virtue infused into the soul by God, which makes us believe without doubting whatever God has revealed. It's that religious sentiment that wells from within that makes us feel something is true. It's the modernist concept of faith. So this conciliar church is built on religious sentiment. And so the reason why dogma has to change and adapt to the time is because it's always got to provoke that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling which they take for faith. And if it doesn't, we need a new formula. We need something that will work for this time. So it's a church built on religious sentiment rather than faith. It's revelation is subordinate to human understanding. That's rationalism, where we don't believe it unless we can prove it. You see it in the belief in the miracles of Scripture. I don't know if you remember, I remember us at school. It was actually a private school. 
Catholic school, in inverted commas. And the priest spent most of his time trying to debunk all the miracles in the gospel, trying to give us rational explanations for them. They want to subject the faith to reason. If you put man at the top, everything must be subjected to him. No, God is at the top and we are way below. And so we believe without doubting whatever God has revealed. It's never against reason. We can show that. But it's not always understandable. We don't understand what the Trinity is. We don't really understand what the hypostatic union is. We don't understand many things about our faith. We don't understand what's going on in the church today, the mystical body of Christ, why our blessed Lord has allowed this, his church to be dragged through the mud. The gifts of the conciliar church are not supernatural. The key to understanding the crisis is the evacuation of the supernatural. Everything has been desacralized. There's no holiness left and no even concept of holiness left. Everything is brought down to the natural level or man has been brought up to the same level as God. We're all equals. Now, fortunately, Jesus Christ is the one true God and salvation is only possible through him. The church was founded by him to continue his mission to save souls and so will remain visible in the world until the end of time. So no matter how deep the crisis is, the church will always be there. The four marks will always be visible, even if they are obscured behind a veil, behind a mist, behind acrid dark smoke. It will always be known, no matter how unworthy its members contrive to hide the marks of the church. Now, in my mind, it's possible that we are witnessing the nearest the church will be to total eclipse, which is the darkest moment before the dawn. The latest initiative, synodality, will soon pass into history and the conciliar church will continue to slowly die. The Catholic church will always have plenty to suffer, regardless, but by the heroism of her saints, the four marks will always shine forth. I like to think like the four wounds in the hands and the feet of our Lord. And the fifth wound will be the outpouring of grace upon the world that comes from those who are faithful. So, my dear brethren, let us pray this prayer with fervor that the course of the world may be directed according to thy rule in peace and that thy church may have the joy of serving thee undisturbed. Let us pray this prayer with the Blessed Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.